Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. take your Bible and be finding the book of Isaiah. We are going to start a new series there, and so we are going to be in chapter one of Isaiah this morning. You may have heard that the week of Christmas, uh, an actor by the name of Jerry Stiller passed away at the age of 92. He is famous for playing several parts, uh, along with being the father of Ben Stiller, but one of the parts he is famous for is the father of George Costanza on Seinfeld. One of the lasting images that he's given us from that particular sitcom is a made-up holiday that he came up with for his family that he called Festivus. It was celebrated every year on December 23rd and included several things. One of the things it included in this made-up holiday was what he called the airing of grievances, something that you might do at your Christmas celebration, though not in the formal way that it's done in Festivus. And so as part of this made-up holiday, the family would sit around the dining room table getting ready to have their meal, and they would air their grievances. And so in that episode, he is standing around the dinner table, and he says this, I've got a lot of problems with you people, and you're going to hear about them. Well, I don't know what you would share on such an occasion. I don't know what I would be willing to share on such an occasion. But what if those words came from the lips of God? What kind of problems would God say that he has with his people? Well, we might immediately think to some of the more major sins violent crimes, sex trafficking, or perhaps terrorism. Surely those are the things that bother God and lead him to what we call righteous anger. Most of our answers to that problem or to that question of what is a problem to God would center on people who do not know God or even actively oppose him. But the question I ask is different. The question I asked is, what kind of problems does God have with his people? Not those who deny God or have nothing to do with him, but those of us who claim to know him. And the answer that we're going to see this morning just might surprise you. God's answer from Isaiah chapter 1 is twofold. Number one, God has a problem with the rebellion of his people. And that part we sort of understand. But the second one is a little bit alarming. God has a problem with the worship of his people. We'll talk about both of those this morning as we start this new series entitled Insights from Isaiah. We are certainly not going to look at the entire book. It is a very long book, 66 chapters in all. And we're also not going to look at some of the more well-known parts of Isaiah Parts like chapter 6, where we have the famous call of Isaiah to ministry, or chapters 52 and 53, where we have these dynamic prophecies of the coming of Christ. We're not going to look at those things because we've already looked at those in other sermons in the past. 
And so in this series, we're going to look at parts of Isaiah that I have never preached from. And certainly not even all of these, because we're going to just spend about three months in this Old Testament book. This morning, we are going to examine about half of chapter 1, verses 2 through 20, under the title, Twin Problems. Looking at these two problems that I've already mentioned that God has with his people. And we will likely see that these problems are not reserved for Israel. They are contemporary problems as well. Now, I realize that starting a new year with problems is not the traditional way to go about it, but we cannot solve the problems we have unless we know that they exist, and we cannot change, which of course is what we all think about when a new year begins. We cannot change unless we understand what needs to be changed. So let's look at these twin problems from Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate. It is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And then verse 10 begins the the second half. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, what has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, you know by now that anytime we start a new book, whether we do the entire book or simply sections of it, we must have a little bit of background information. I mean, the more we know about the author and the people to whom he is writing and the setting that necessitated the writing in the first place, the more we understand all of that, the more the book opens up to us and we can understand what is being written. And there is certainly plenty of background information for Isaiah, but rather than dump all of that on you during this first week, I am going to try and sprinkle it along the way. The first verse, which we did not read, tells us that this is a vision of Isaiah. Notice that the word vision is singular, meaning that we have a unified message throughout this entire book. Even though it is a collection of his sermons, of his sayings, of his, uh, of his thoughts and writings over the course of his entire ministry as a prophet, they are all pulled together as one singular vision. And it is not necessarily a vision as we would use the word, which means we, we think of something that he saw. And some of this might fall into that category, but really he's using the word to speak of the fact that all of this comes as supernatural revelation from God. Words and sayings that he has received from God. And make no mistake about it, it is God who is doing the speaking in this book, even as it is God who speaks throughout the Bible. You noticed in verse 2 and verse 10, the beginning of, of both of these sayings, that Isaiah acknowledges that it is God who is doing the speaking. The author tells us in verse 1 that his father was Amos. And Jewish tradition says that he was the brother of King Amaziah, who was the father of Uzziah. Which if that's true, though it is not certain, it would explain how Isaiah has such such familiarity with the kings of his time. Elsewhere we learn that Isaiah was a married man with children and likely a resident of Jerusalem from which he preached or said all of these things. His name means Yahweh or God saves, which is not only the meaning of his name, but it is going to be a large part of his message. He is very specific in the first verse as to the time frame in which he ministered. He lists the four kings, all kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem, under which he uh, ministered or uh, taught. We know that King Uzziah died in 740 B.C. and that Hezekiah reigned until 687 B.C. So Isaiah ministered for at least 25 years and perhaps upwards of 50 years. His book is considered to be the richest Old Testament book, encompassing the sweep of biblical theology more so than any other. 
And he is considered to be the pinnacle of all the Old Testament prophets, in part because he is quoted in the New Testament more so than any prophet. In fact, he is quoted in the New Testament more than all of the other Old Testaments put together. Some have called him the prophet of holiness because of the terminology that he uses. He calls God, a a term that he probably made up, he calls him the Holy One of Israel some 25 times. That title is only found outside of Isaiah four times, but he uses it regularly. He uses the adjective holy to describe God more so than all of the rest of the Old Testament combined. The setting for his ministry is something that we looked at in our last series in the crises of the Bible. And that is, Isaiah was ministering during that time when Assyria was the the powerful enemy, the, the foreign kingdom that was the most powerful at that time, who would eventually overcome the northern kingdom of Israel and deport them and subjugate the southern kingdom of Judah underneath them. And then Isaiah goes on to prophesy not only what was going on during his lifetime, but he goes on to prophesy about what was going to happen after his lifetime, and that is the fall of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people to Babylon. And then later, again, looking probably close to 200 years into the future, he talks about the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And as you can imagine... He was probably not a very popular person in his day, as most of the prophets were not. And as I mentioned earlier, his call to ministry is famously recorded for us in chapter 6, which means we have to wonder why are there five chapters before Isaiah is called to ministry? Are these five chapters events that happened before his call? Or more likely, are these five chapters a preface that he puts before his calls so that we can see a bit of the context and the setting in which he was called? Well, I I think that's enough background information for now to hopefully convince us that we need to study and learn from this prophet. This is not a classic that we put on our bookshelf so that we can tell people we own it. This is a classic that we need to read and study and learn from and apply. And so now we move to the twin problems that Isaiah addresses in this first chapter. The first is the problem of rebellion. We see that word in verse 2, and I remind you again that God is speaking to his children. So the application here, when we get there, is not the rebellion of the world. The application is not all of those people out there who are denying God and living apart from him. The application when we get there is for the church. And by rebellion, I mean the forsaking of God. The active, willful forsaking of God. A a word we also see in verse 4. We are going to be repeatedly reminded from Isaiah that they had turned away from God toward idols, never outright denying God. They simply blended him into all of the other gods that they embraced, and therefore they thought they were not rebelling nor forsaking, but in God's eyes they were. And it is God's perspective 
that we need to understand. It is not what we think about ourselves that is most important, nor what others think about us. It is what God says about us. And so the rebellion here is not a specific sin, but it is the rupturing of the relationship. You see the family terminology there. Multiple times he calls them children. And sadly, some of you are familiar with the heartache that comes with a rebellious child. One that you loved, one that you invested in, one that you still love. And yet for some reason, they have forsaken and rebelled against you. And your heart aches. And like the father in Jesus' famous parable, you wait with open arms for them to return. Now imagine that scenario played out hundreds of thousands, no millions of times with God being the father and we being his children who are rebelling against him. So notice, first of all, the ignorance of rebellion. Verse three, God's rebellious children are compared to animals and not the, slightest, not, not the smartest of animals either. The ox and the donkey are not high on the animal intelligence scale. So this is not a positive comparison. But an ox and a donkey instinctively know who it is that provides for them and where to go to get that provision. It would be foolish for an animal to rebel against the one who is faithfully providing him with home and food. And Isaiah is saying, likewise, it is foolish or ignorant of us as God's children to turn away from the one who owns us and provides for us. And yet that is exactly what Israel had done and what many continue to do. To forsake God is against common decency. It's against common sense. It's against our very nature as children of God. And so we become like dumb animals. Animals who lack intelligence when we know who it is that provides for us and we forsake him nevertheless. We get frustrated sometimes when our children do not appreciate all that we do for them. And then we turn right around and treat God just like that. Or more likely, much worse. Notice in verse 4 the depth of this rebellion. Multiple words are piled on top of one another in verse 4 to give us the picture of just how dire the situation has become. And the end result is that they are utterly estranged. Not just separated, not just distant, but utterly and completely estranged from the very God they, they claim to love. The relationship could not be more distant. Though again, Isaiah's words will fall on deaf ears. And none of this is new. It's been handed down from generation to generation. Most parents want their children to do better than they've done, usually meaning that we want them to be more successful than we've been. And that means in whatever career they choose, we want them to excel. It means that in relationships, we want them to, to be solid. In athletics, we want them to go farther than we ever went. And financially, we want them to be more secure than we are. But we certainly don't want them to exceed us or even match us in our sin. We want them to learn from our mistakes so that they do not repeat them. And yet the charge here is that Israel is just generation after generation getting worse and worse. 
resulting in a nation that was supposed to be set apart and holy to God, a, a nation that Isaiah now calls a sinful nation. All of this resulting in the consequences of rebellion. And since the depth of their rebellion has left them utterly estranged, we would expect the consequences to be both severe and comprehensive. And that's exactly what we find. The whole head, the whole heart are both sick. The body is portrayed as beaten and bruised. Likewise, the land has been overrun by foreigners. Now, you understand that all of this is figurative language to describe their spiritual condition. The land had not been literally overrun by foreigners, though in the future it would be. Their bodies were not literally filled with sores and bruises. All of this is used to describe their spiritual lives, and their spiritual lives are in such a disarray that it's sometimes hard for us to see, and therefore Isaiah puts it in physical language, which is also why we see the three similes in verse 8 to help us picture what's going on here. The last of the three is easy for us to understand, like a besieged city. We talked about that in our crisis series. It was something they were familiar with in warfare and something that they would experience again in the future. But the other two are a little harder for us to understand. But they seem to be saying something similar. It was common in those days when it was time for the harvest to erect a temporary shelter in the harvest field. Because houses were a, a distance from the, the field, they would erect a temporary shelter, a lean-to, so that they could remain in the field during harvest. But of course, once the harvest was over, they would return to their more stable home. And they would leave that temporary shelter out in the field, and obviously it would begin to decay and deteriorate. And so Isaiah uses that imagery to talk about their spiritual lives, lives that were decayed and left unattended. And were it not for the mercy of God, they would have been destroyed like the ancient cities and inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is what they deserved. And we know they deserve that because at the beginning of the second part, Isaiah actually calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. But here we see that that's what they deserved, and yet it is not what they get because of God's mercy and grace. Now, it is easy to sit here and study what problems other people have. It is easy to look at our family and friends and see the problems of rebellion in their lives. It's easy to look at our children and notice the actions and attitudes in their life that spell rebellion. But spiritual rebellion in our own hearts is much harder to spot because we are very good at hiding it. And we can even hide it from ourselves because the Bible is very clear that it is difficult for us to even know our own hearts, which then leads us to look at the second problem, a problem of hiding rebellion even with spiritual activity. But before we get there, it would be helpful to start the new year, not just in these couple of moments that we have together, but perhaps this afternoon or maybe tomorrow morning when you're spending time with God, to ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, to see if there is indeed rebellion in your own life. Maybe you already know there is. Maybe you came this morning knowing full well 
that you're rebelling against God and you need to change. And we'll come back to that solution in a moment. But for now, we move on to the second problem, which begins in verse 10. And the second problem is the problem of worship. Now, your first thought is that those two words don't go together. A problem with worship? How can there be a problem when we are worshiping God? Or perhaps your mind immediately goes to the style of worship and you say, yes, there is a problem with worship. It is those people who want to worship differently than I want to worship. They're the ones with a problem of worship. Or perhaps you think that the problem must be a lack of worship. I mean, the people that aren't here, the people that refuse to come to church and acknowledge God or direct any praise or worship toward him, those are the problems with worship. And yet, none of that is what Isaiah is talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, we notice that he's talking about the external forms of worship. Starting in verse 10, there is a host of activities mentioned that were all part of their worship. Sacrifices, offerings, Sabbaths, feasts, festivals. All of those things that we associate with Old Testament worship and all of which God says, I'm tired of it. I've had enough. It's a burden to me. That's some harsh language. Especially since all of these are activities that God commanded and God required. And so some people look at this and they begin to argue that God was tired of all of this and wanted the forms of worship to stop. But that can't be what he's getting at here because he actually includes prayers. He's not going to tell people to stop praying. So it is not the the form of worship that God has a problem with. It is the abuse of that form. That is the forms of worship that are external have always been meant to symbolize the internal reality that is in the heart. They were not meant to be divorced from the internal reality. They were meant to symbolize it. And what God is saying is they do not have a heart for worship, and therefore all of the external forms are vain and meaningless. And so Isaiah is challenging them when it comes to the abuse of the religious system, not the the system itself. You know, it's always much easier to gauge the external forms We do it as a church. How many people were in worship this morning? How many people are going to commit to reading the Bible plan that we've put out this year? How many people have joined the church? How many people have been baptized? We do the same thing personally. Have I had my quiet time today? Am I going to give some money in the offering plate today? Did I pay attention during the sermon? And so these things are easy to measure. They are external forms. And therefore, it's easy for us to gauge our success or lack thereof, both as Christians and as a church, on the basis of these external forms. But the spiritual life is always much harder to gauge. Others cannot see it, and we often find it hard to measure ourselves. But the truth then remains the truth now. Superficial religion with its external forms is alive and prevalent which means it is possible for you to read your Bible daily and not worship. It is possible for you to attend church weekly and not worship. It is possible for you to have celebrated Christmas and not worship. 
The bottom line with what Isaiah is dealing with here is that their lives did not match their worship. The the problem of rebellion that we've already discussed produced the problem of superficial worship. You cannot live in rebellion against God, continue the external forms of worship, and think that God is pleased. God has always been concerned with the attitude and the character of the worshiper, not just the outward symbols that we go through. And as a result, something needs to change. And so the next thing we see is God calling for personal reform for worship, verse 16. And verse 16 is very plain. Clean up your act. The blood on your hands that we see in verse 15 needs to be removed. Now, we are quick to guard the grace of God, meaning we we don't like to talk about anything that might seem to smack of works salvation. And yet the Bible is very clear repeatedly that we are to repent. So these things do not need to negate our own responsibility. Our love for the grace of God does not change our responsibility. Our understanding that we cannot even do these things without the Holy Spirit working in and through us does not change the responsibility that we have when the Bible says very clearly, change the way you think and change the way you act. Again, verse 16 is very clear. Stop doing what is evil and start doing what is good. Then you will be prepared for worship. But it doesn't end with mere personal reform. The next verse says we are also to seek societal reform for worship. Part of our doing good is seeking justice for all especially those who are most vulnerable and cannot attain justice on their own. Now, if you've followed religious news at all this past year, you know that the topic of social justice has been and continues to be a huge topic. It is dividing churches. It is dividing leaders within denominations. And the debate is multifaceted. Is this part of the gospel? Or is social justice diverting us from the gospel? Is it something that the church should be doing? Or is it something that individual members within the church ought to be involved in? Or even more basic, what in the world does it mean? What is social justice and how far should it extend? Well, clearly we've been unable to come up with a consensus on these and many other questions concerning this topic. But do know this. God is a God of justice, and God will eventually someday right all wrongs. So God is a God of justice who also sees oppression and injustice. And we, as God's children, who are called to be conformed to the image of God, ought to also see the injustice and seek to change it, not just for ourselves, but for others. And this is another case where God desires to use us as the means by which he brings about justice. Finally, in verse 18, there is an invitation to reform worship. Frankly, this is the verse that caught my attention, that led me to select this particular passage. What a great invitation it is. In spite of 
all of the negative things we've seen in all of these verses, and there are some harsh statements, God now says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Return to God, and God will give you forgiveness. In spite of how deep their rebellion has been, in spite of how deep maybe your rebellion is, God says to you, come back to me, and I will give you forgiveness. We had a beautiful snow Christmas Eve, didn't we? I mean, it messed up our Christmas Eve service as far as attendance goes. It messed up our family's plan to go out to dinner after the Christmas Eve service, and so we had to scramble and eat sandwiches at home for Christmas Eve. But it was beautiful. We had a white Christmas, and so we were all taking pictures and posting selfies. For most of us, probably the first white Christmas of our lives. And it was beautiful. It was peaceful. It was pure. And the word pure is why Isaiah uses the word snow here. The purity of snow. And though your hands may be filled with blood, he says, you can be pure as the driven snow. What a phenomenal invitation. After all God has said about their rebellion and their heartless worship, he stands ready to receive and forgive. Isaiah is going to teach us a lot about the nature and the character of God, but here in this first chapter is a very deep lesson. No matter how long nor deep your rebellion might have been, God stands ready to forgive those who return to him in repentance. In the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, we see twin solutions to this twin problem, which means you have two options. We can accept this incredible invitation, repent and return to God, which means that we must abandon our rebellion, change our minds, set new objectives and priorities that are aligned with God's will, not our own. And that sounds a lot like a New Year's resolution, doesn't it? I mean, this time of year when we decide we want to make some changes in our lives and be better people and do better things so that we can be more successful. But instead of focusing on temporal things like weight or money, why not focus on eternal things like our relationship with God? It doesn't mean everything will go your way in 2021, but God does promise to bless those who faithfully follow him, verse 19. But there is also a second option. You can continue in your rebellion, and you can continue in your external motions of worship. And if that's the choice you make, there is a promise here as well. But the promise in verse 20 is further destruction. On the surface, the choice seems rather clear. But like most New Year's resolutions, it's much harder to stay with it over the long term. But I remind you that we have the presence of God, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have the encouragement of God's people, so we are not in this alone. But choose wisely, because the stakes are very high. Let me pray. Father, as we begin a new year, through the prophet Isaiah this morning, perhaps you've called us out because of our rebellion against you. 
Perhaps you've called us out because of our superficial, external-only worship. And we need to repent and return. And we need to know that you stand ready as you've promised to not just receive us, but to forgive us. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Father, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from our impurity, and empower us to walk in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.